I want to talk with you today about experiencing wholeness in the Christian life. Now, this is not some cheesy talk about how to experience your best life now. It's certainly not some health and wealth prosperity gospel. Uh, it is not some self-realization program. Instead, it is simply the gospel, the only gospel. There is only one gospel, and that gospel does impart wholeness to the Christian, spiritually, mentally, and relationally. Now, my point I want to make here today is that the cause of so much spiritual, mental, and relational suffering within the Christian community is the loss of the gospel of the whole will of God, as Paul defines it in Acts chapter 20. What we understand to be the gospel within both Catholic and Protestant circles is, in fact, a myriad of different versions of the gospel, all of which were imported from the European state church system to the colonies from about the 16th century forward. Now, I want to say that again. What we commonly understand to be the gospel within both Catholic and Protestant circles is, in fact, a myriad of different versions of the gospel, all of which were imported from the European state church system to the colonies from about the 16th century forward. If you will grasp that one reality, you will take a leap towards wholeness. And the reason is, is that your spiritual, mental, and relational health is to realize that the state church in Europe for centuries, certainly since Constantine in the 4th century, demanded a trimmed-down, distorted version of the gospel in order to comply with the agenda of the state church. But you need to know that the whole will of God is necessary in order for you to realize the wholeness for which Christ died and rose again. So, there you are at odds, which you will likely hear on Sunday in most churches. And I mean Catholic, Greek Orthodox, and Protestant, Evangelical, and Pentecostal churches. It's some pared-down version of the gospel that's been treated and conformed to some other human agenda. And my burden, my concern, is that that gospel, while it may sound good, it may look good, it may appear to be the gospel, is not going to bring wholeness into your life. It can't. A half of a gospel, or even a 90% of the gospel, cannot bring wholeness. And remember the simple truth that the devil traffics in half-truths 
That's what makes it so insidious. That's what makes him so cunning and so effective, too, by the way. Is that there's a lot of man-made religion masking as Christianity. And it's always based on half-truths. I've even had people tell me, well, my pastor preaches from the Bible. And my immediate thought always is, well, so does the devil. So what? That that mean that's a meaningless statement. My preacher preaches from the Bible. What does he preach? What's the basis? What's the paradigm? And under what spirit does he preach? Those are all questions you and I have every right to ask. We have simply no obligation to sit under anyone's preaching and teaching just because they have credentials just because they're called reverend, just because they came from a seminary, or just because an elder board hired them to do so. So the question that needs to be asked is this, simply. Is there more than one gospel? Is there a Catholic and a Protestant gospel? We can even break it down further by asking, is there, under the Catholic umbrella, a Roman or Greek Orthodox gospel. And on the other side of the ledger, we can ask, under the Protestant umbrella, is there an Anglican, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Methodist, Reformed Baptist, Dispensational Baptist, or Pentecostal gospel? Just how many versions of the gospel exist? Now, I realize that someone would argue that the great dividing line exists only between Catholic and Protestant. For in the Protestant world, there is unity on the essentials of the gospel regarding justification by faith alone. I understand that argument. I get it. I'm 67. I've been in the church for 45 years, and I've heard all the arguments. But I'm also, as a pastoral counselor, see people each week whose lives are a train wreck because of partial gospels, because of half-truths, because of distorted, twisted gospels. So, that last statement is that there's somehow unity on the essentials of the gospel in itself reveals a pared-down, uh, trimmed-back gospel. I mean, if we're fellowshipping on essentials, what part of the gospel have we determined is not essential? So, if justification by faith alone is the only essential that matters, this demands the question, does justification by faith alone represent the whole will of God? Or is this doctrine of justification by faith alone as important as it is? You will seldom meet a stronger advocate for the doctrine of justification by faith alone than myself. 
But the question stands, is this doctrine as important as it is the only aspect of the whole will of God? In Acts chapter 20, Paul said he spent three years going from house to house in Ephesus, warning, teaching, with tears, that people cling to the whole will of God. He said he went about preaching the kingdom of God. And then he warned the Ephesian elders that he knew that once he left, that fierce wolves would come in, not sparing the flock. They would come in from outside the church and from within, speaking perverse things. And so he knew it wouldn't be long before even his dust had settled. He wouldn't be far down the road. You'd still be able to see his taillights, if you will, before the devil would start coming in and sowing tares. So, Paul also had said before he left that he was free of the innocent, he was innocent or free of the blood of all men because he had not shrank back but preached the whole will of God. Are you hearing that? Do you get, do you get the gravity of that statement? <clears throat> Paul is saying that to not preach the whole will of God is to be blood guilty, to have blood guilt, to have the blood of those to whom you've been preaching on your hands. And he said, I just want you to know that I'm innocent of the blood of all men, of any of you, because I have not shrank back to preach anything that was of your benefit and as, as understood by preaching the whole will of God. So the question remains here, is the whole will of God fully represented within the doctrine of justification by faith alone? That's what we've been told for 500 years, ever since the Reformation. Now, I realize this question it may, may make many of you uncomfortable. After all, we've been told that Luther felt that justification by faith alone is the singular doctrine whereby the church stands or falls. And we've been told that we have made this doctrine of justification the core of our faith and the basis of fellowship among various Protestants and evangelical churches. We know we are Protestant because we believe in justification by faith alone as opposed to justification by works. And that is wholly true. Something can be absolutely true and not be the whole picture. So all these things are true. So this lesson is not an argument against the doctrine of justification by faith alone. But instead, 
It is a call to raise our sights and broaden our understanding of the gospel so that what we preach and teach is, in fact, the whole will of God and nothing short of it. Justification by faith alone is necessary, just as water and food are necessary to sustain life. And yet we would never consider water and food to define the whole of life. So I hope you hear what I'm saying, you hear what I'm asking. But one would think so. One would think that justification by faith alone represents the totality of the gospel of Christ, given that this doctrine, and not the whole will of God, are the basis for fellowship among various and differing Protestants and evangelical bodies. It's the reason why John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul could go golfing together and be such close buddies, even though their doctrinal statements were quite different. But if either of them were interested in preaching the whole will of God with all due respect, they would have not been able to so easily find that kind of fellowship. What I'm saying to you, I've already said before, if we fail to preach the whole will of God, we will not bring wholeness into people's lives. We will not see the wholeness of the gospel at work in people's lives. We will see something less than. So if you're going to know the fullness of life, which is in Christ, you must be willing to consider this chief theological reality. And that is this. The doctrine of justification by faith alone, as important as it is, does not reflect the whole will of God. And don't let anyone tell you that somehow you're being unfaithful to the Reformation doctrine. That's simply not true. You know, it is questionable whether even the Reformers would have said that justification by faith alone is all there is to the gospel. Now, the apostolic writings affirm this effect. So let's stop listening to me and turn instead to what they had to say. We're going to take a look at the book of Acts first. And let me begin by saying that the book of Acts, for some of you who maybe are new converts, who are, are new to your study of the Bible, the book of Acts follows the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it's Luke's recording of the preaching and missionary work of the early church following Pentecost. The Lord Jesus had preached and taught and performed many good works and miracles for three years, all of which led to his all-sufficient atoning work on the cross, as was affirmed by his resurrection and shortly following his return to the Father, the outpouring of the Spirit. And so important was this giving of the Spirit. So important was this giving of the Spirit that the risen Christ instructed his apostles to not go anywhere or do anything, he said in Acts 1, 4 through 5, but wait for the gift of my Father, the gift my Father promised, what you have heard me speak about. 
for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Again, that's Acts 1, 4-5. So put simply, the immeasurable worth and efficacy of the cross and resurrection was made fully effectual by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. To put it another way, without Pentecost, the work of Christ would have been in vain. Now, this may shock some of you. And if it does, it's only because you have been taught something less than the will of God. Pentecost was absolutely necessary. It wasn't just an add-on to the finished work of Christ. It was absolutely necessary to make the work of Christ effectual. That's all I'm saying. So what I'm saying is what the church has always taught, that salvation is a Trinitarian work, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we do live in an age in which Protestant, Evangelical, and even many Pentecostals operate as though salvation is binatarian, Father and Son only, or worse, a false trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Bible. And I suspect that that's because in our just zeal to recover the essential truth of the supremacy of Scripture, we have gone too far and forgotten the author of Scripture, who is, of course, the Holy Spirit. Now, this is critical for you because we must recover the salvific paradigm in which the Holy Spirit is the sole agent of transformation, and the Scripture is the instrument the Spirit uses to bring about that change. So, while it is true that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, this truth assumes the knowledge that it is the Holy Spirit who first regenerates the dead sinner by the Word of God and imparts the gift of faith so that he or she responds to the call of God to believe in His Son. You can see that in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. So it is the Spirit that works in the believer from the moment of initial rebirth to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, the one in Christ is, therefore, a spirit person. What marks the one in Christ out from those in the world is the presence of the Spirit indwelling them. Not circumcision, not church attendance, not holy days, not dietary laws, not dress, not political party, not social philosophy, but the presence of the Spirit in them. So if you are in Christ, you are no longer belonging to the realm of the flesh and under law, by the way, but in the Spirit and under grace. We're inching toward the whole will of God here. So please, mark this carefully. It is not until you grasp what I've just said about the work of the Spirit in you and for you that you will be available to experience on an existential basis all that Paul promises 
in Romans 8, 31 through 39. And in this, I'm going to close this brief lesson with that reading. Romans 8, 31 through 39 says this. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long, for we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. End quote. What Paul has just described there, beloved, is the life of one who is whole, spiritually, mentally, relationally. That's the what then, shall we say, in response to these things. He spent the previous several chapters outlining what it means to be in Christ and to be no longer in the flesh, in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit, meaning you're no longer under law, you're under grace, and that you are being conformed into the image of God's own Son. His character and thought, word and deed is being formed in you, and against such there is no law, as he says in Galatians 5. Well, we're going to pause there. I want to give you plenty of time to process this and begin to wet your, your thoughts, wet your lips, <laughs> wet your whistle, and develop a taste for what I'm saying to you today. It takes some courage, and I respect that. It takes some courage to step away from religious traditionalism. Even the best religious tra traditionalism is still just that traditionalism. My wife grew up Lutheran and she appreciates her upbringing. But today she looks back and she realizes that she had to peel off a lot of what she was told in order to embrace the truth that scripture told her. And that's a choice that we all have to face. What I've said to you today is that the gospel as we understand it in America 
is in fact simply one version of the gospel depending on which tradition we are a part of. It was the necessity of the European state church that that the gospel be annotated, trimmed back, even distorted in order to fit the European state church system. And after the Reformation, and as the European uh, countries sent population and population loss to the New World, beginning with the colonies and then spreading west to form the United States and Canada, we imported, we brought with us those Gospels as they were taught, as they were developed, and as they were presented within the European State Church. And we've been told now for 250 years that those are the gospel. The simple fact that there's so many of them <laughs> should be the first hint that there's something not right. There aren't many gospels. There's just one gospel. And so I have told you also that we must find fellowship in unity in the Spirit, and that we must follow the lead of the Spirit through the Scripture to recover the glorious gospel of the whole will of God, if, in fact, we are going to know the wholeness that Paul sets forth in Romans 8, 31 through 39. I invite you to read that several times. And the next time we're together, which will be soon, we'll talk more about the gospel of the whole will of God and why Paul felt it was so important that he spent three years in Ephesus going from house to house, preaching and teaching and warning with tears to not settle for anything less than the whole will of God. Amen.